So we this is never a black and white issue. We need to consider that there's nuance here. There's a bit of complexity that the media doesn't like to tell us, right? The media loves to paint a black and white picture, good versus evil, but that's not real life. That's fairy tales. So we need to think a little bit deeper. That's why I love doing podcasts with guys like you. Because it's not just about 30-second sound bites of good and evil. It's about going a little bit deeper into seeing what's really going on. Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Nir Ayal, the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, and more recently, Indistractable. Yeah, his brand new book, Indistractable, is all about you know, controlling these triggers that are around us that he talked about in Hooked and sort of trying to claim back your focus, your attention, traction, doing the things that you want to do, taking your time back and stop getting distracted. We all are very hooked and very addicted to a lot of many different devices. So, Nir is an expert in this stuff and I think in this interview, we're going to learn a little bit how to uh, get your authority over your own time back and essentially become indistractable, as Big Nir would call it. Yes. About six months ago, we did uh, an interview with Cal Newport about his book, Digital Minimalism, and you might hear a few jabs at uh, some of those ideas. These books are you know, 80% similar, but the other 20% of their approach is slightly different, and I reckon there's a bit of beef there. There's a bit of beef. Yeah. They, 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 <laughs> it's funny, though. He claims to be mates, but there's a bit of beef, but they're both good books, and they're two different ways of uh, getting your time back. To, to kick it off yeah can you give us just a, a bit of a state of play i guess of the world of technology and distractions today we were just checking our screen time stats can you hit us with some of the the state of play of what everyone's up to these days uh well let's see so the big talk these days is you know is technology addicting us is it hijacking our brains or is it something that we can manage on our own Ooh, yeah well i uh, i feel like i'm uh I'm uh, consciously trying to manage on my own, but also can fall victim to being uh, somewhat addicted. I, I just checked my own screen time. It says I'm up to two and a half hours per day. I reckon that's, I'm calling BS on that, but it does say 110 pickups per day, which I feel like is a hell of a lot more than it probably should be. <laughs> yeah, so the question is, what what do we do about that, right? Mm. So that's this is uh, this is a central question of my book. Uh, that uh, I found that I was getting distracted throughout my day and doing things that I didn't really want to do, that I kept getting distracted when I was with my daughter, when I was at work, when I was uh, doing you know several things throughout my day, and I, I kept getting pulled away from it, and that's why I decided to, to write this book. Mm. So we might uh, start with, with Hooked, and you know, I've got this weird psychological impulse to check my phone, and you know, if my phone's in my pocket, there's this weird pull that I've got to it to, to grab it and, you know, my numbers are 68 times a day, which I'm calling bullshit, but it's probably just, it's probably true that I just don't remember half the time I pick it up. But what what hope have we got compared to these organizations who are using this hooked model and maybe talk a little bit about how they get us hooked in, in the yeah. first place? So the first thing we need to do is to change our mindset. So I wrote the book on how to build habit-forming technology, and I can tell you as an industry insider, these techniques are good, but they're not mind control. They're not addicting you, okay? Like if you can sit down at dinner for a few minutes without checking your phone, you're, you're not pathologically addicted. Addiction is a disease. It is not, I like to use it a lot. But we like to use this word addiction because addiction denotes dealers and pushers and mind control. 
But for the vast majority of us, you know, some people are pathologically addicted, just like some people are addicted to alcohol. We like a beer, but we're not alcoholics. Not everyone who has sex is a sex addict. Not everyone who gambles once in a while with a, a poker night is a problem gambler. So why should technology be any different? It's not any different. Some people are pathologically addicted, but you're probably not. There's a 95% chance uh, you are not pathologically addicted. And if that's the case, that means we have control. And some people don't like that, by the way. When I say that, they say, oh, crap, now I have to actually do something about the problem as opposed to just blaming Facebook all day. <laughs> and the fact is we can do something about it because these aren't addictions. These are distractions. And distraction, the best way to understand distraction is to understand what distraction is not. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. If you want to watch YouTube, if that's what you want to do with your time, if you want to watch a football game, if you want to play Candy Crush, do it. That's great. But do it with intent, right? That's traction. Totally fine to do. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action you do that pulls you away from what you plan to do. And so this is important to do to, to realize because many times when we say we're going to do that big project, we're going to work on that hard assignment, we're going to finally do the thing that we procrast we've been procrastinating on, we trick ourselves, we let distraction trick us, and we say to ourselves, well, I'll do that right after I check email <laughs> or right after I, I catch up on my Slack channels or right after I just Google that one thing because that's kind of worky, right? That's kind of a productive <laughs> thing to do, right? Yeah. But it's just as much of a pernicious distraction if it's not what I plan to do with my time. So that's the first thing we need to learn. We have to understand what is traction, what is distraction based on our, our lives, what's valuable to us. And my goal is not to tell you what to do. You should do whatever is according to your values. But I want to help you do whatever it is that you find valuable. If you want to play video games, great. If you want to write a novel, great. If you want to start a side hustle, a side business, terrific. I want to help you do whatever it is that you say is important to do in your life without getting distracted. Oh, yeah, I love it. Well, that sounds uh, absolutely vital to be able to choose what we want to do and not, you know, and do what we want to do as opposed to getting pulled towards something that we don't want to do. And uh, the the new book, Indistractable, is, is all about that. You've got a nice four-step plan, which we'd love to go through the, the four steps. Um, so can you sort Absolutely. of, yeah, set us up? Where do, we, where do we begin to move towards being indistractable? Right. So we talked about traction and distraction. Now we need to talk about what prompts us to either traction or distraction. There's only two things that prompt all of our behaviors. We have internal triggers and we have external triggers. External triggers, these are all the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. But that's not actually the main source of distraction. The number one source of distraction are these internal triggers. Because most frequently, if we're honest with ourselves, what we don't like to admit the icky sticky truth is that distraction typically starts from within. It's an escape from an uncomfortable sensation. In fact, all human motivation, everything we do is about the alleviation of discomfort. If you talk to folks and you ask them, hey, what's, why, what, what's the basis of motivation? They'll tell you some version of what we call Freud's pleasure principle. Freud said that all behavior is about a desire to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Not true. Hmm. Neurologically speaking, that is not the case. Because all des all, everything we do, all motivation is in fact not inspired, not prompted by a desire to uh, pursue pleasure and avoid pain. It's pain 
all the way down. Ooh. Even the pursuit of something pleasurable, even wanting to feel good, craving, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically speaking, that's exactly what's going on. So if we agree that that's the case, that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape, to escape discomfort, what that means, therefore, is that time management is pain management. So all the productivity hacks, all the life hacks, all the guru's techniques around how to manage your time are not going to work unless you know how to manage discomfort. Time management is pain management. So the first step to becoming indistractable is to master your internal triggers, to understand how you can better cope with those uncomfortable emotional states that prompt you to either traction or distraction. So that's step number one. Step number two is to make time for traction. So you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So in this day and age, if you don't keep a calendar, I don't want to hear about you getting distracted. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse, mm. okay? You have to keep a calendar down to the minute. You know why? Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. How can you say you got distracted? And I, if I said, okay, what'd you get distracted from? I don't know. There's white space on my calendar. Well, duh, in this day and age, if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. The news, your boss, your kids, your spouse, somebody's going to eat up your time if you don't decide in advance what you want to do with your time. And if what you want to do with that time is take a long walk on the beach, go surfing, play video games, meditate, I could care less. Do whatever it is you want to do based on your values. Plan your day down to the minute, and if you don't, you can't complain about getting distracted. Mm. The third thing you have to do is to hack back the external triggers. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. How can we call technology addictive if we haven't taken 10 minutes to turn off those goddamn notification settings. Do you really need a ping, a ding from every one of your apps? No, take 10 (laughs) minutes and turn that crap off. And guess what? There's nothing Zuckerberg can do to turn it back on. (laughs) Nothing, he can't reach into your phone and turn it back on. So what are we complaining about here? It's an excuse. Not only do we have to change the notification settings on our phone, we have to make sure that other environments that we work in are also places where we hack back. So the open floor plan office, terrible source of distraction for many people who work in open floor plan offices, constant distraction because people, you know, companies save a lot of money when they don't have to give everyone their own office. Problem is people stop by your desk to gossip, chit chat. You're constantly distracted. You can't do your best work. So every copy of my book, Indistractable, comes with a screen sign. And this screen sign is printed on cardstock. It's bright red. You pull it out of the book, you fold it into thirds and you put it on your computer monitor. And it says on it, I'm indistractable. Please come back later. So you don't leave it on your screen all day. You put it on there when you need some time to focus and think and actually do your job. <laughs> and so you think, oh, okay, well, that's what I put headphones on for. Here's the problem. You might not be distracted while you put headphones are on, but everyone around you, they think you're watching YouTube videos uh, and slacking been. off. So put that screen sign on to tell people, no, I'm not slacking off. I'm doing work and I need to concentrate right now. And then the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is all about making a pre-commitment, taking steps today to make sure you don't get distracted tomorrow. And you can do this in a few different ways. They're called price pacts, effort pacts, and identity pacts. Uh, Simple things like working with a friend to keep each other accountable or using technology against itself. So you can use free tech. There's all these free tools out there like Rescue Time and Self-Control and Forest, these apps that we can use that block out distraction websites 
during a set period of time when we need to do our best work. Mm. So that's it. I love it. We're, well, we're almost cured, but I've probably got a few follow-up questions just to yeah. to really to really drill down. I guess so. Back to the first step. So those internal triggers. You said it was all about pain management. A lot of what we do is trying to avoid pain. What are some of the I guess uh, examples of things that people do uh, that are distracting them, probably without even noticing? Like, the, what are the things that people are doing to avoid that pain when maybe they they think it's something more surface level, but if they dug a little deeper, they'd realize it probably was related to pain. Oh, absolutely. So everything we do is in fact around the desire to escape discomfort. There is no single action that you do that's not about escaping discomfort, whether you realize it or not. And so when we when we give in to distraction, like any behavior, that is also about trying to escape some kind of deeper discomfort. So when we're uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check stock prices, sports scores, the news, Reddit. I mean, you take your pick. All of these things we do like babies sucking on a binky for emotional pacification. We don't like to feel those feelings, so habitually we reach for a distraction. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? That one of my beefs with the self-help and personal development industry these days is that we're constantly told if you're not happy, if you're not satisfied, if your life isn't awesome, then something's wrong with you. (laughs) And nothing could be further from the truth. That in fact our species has evolved to be perpetually perturbed. We are designed by evolution to constantly want more. And we can use that to our benefit, right? If it wasn't for that desire, if we were all Buddhist monks meditating all day, who would make the life-changing medicine? Who would take us into outer space? Who would connect us through technological innovation? We need to want to create, but we need to channel it towards good uses as opposed to letting it drive us to distraction. So it's really about channeling that 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 uh, disquietude towards a more healthful outlook. Hmm. I feel like one of the biggest places or the easiest ways to get distracted somewhat is, uh, or may not be distraction based on new values like you were talking about, but say on a commute on the way to work or something like that. And, you know, everyone's, a lot of people might be looking at their phone. How do you spend your time in those gap periods in between your schedule that you mm. might have planned. Uh, do you use that to look at your phone or do you have other things that are, are more productive for yourself? Yeah, so these are called liminal moments. That, that's what I call them. And liminal moments are these transition periods between one task to the next. And they can be pretty dangerous. And the reason they're dangerous is not so much what you're doing in the moment itself. It's what you do after the liminal moment. So you 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 stop at a red light and you say, well, I've got a few seconds here. I'll look at my phone. And then the light changes and you either get a honk from the person behind you <laughs> or you keep using your phone as you're driving, which mm-hmm. is very, very dangerous. So that's when we get into trouble or we're in the office and we're coming from our meeting and we're walking back to our desk and we decide to check our phone and then 20, 30, 40 minutes, we're still checking our phone as opposed to doing the thing that's on our schedule to do next. That's the harm done. So I'll be completely honest with you. When I walk around New York City, where I live, mm. I oftentimes look at my phone because I can do it safely, right? And I'm, maybe maybe this is wrong. God forbid, but you know, I hope I don't jinx myself and get into an accident tomorrow. But I'm pretty safe if I look at myself when I'm if I if I watch out for myself and 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 look at my phone. There's actually been studies that people who who walk as they look at their phone are not more likely to to get into accidents. However, the trouble would come from what happens next after the liminal moment. And this is part of the reason why we have to keep that schedule. Step two of making time for traction. If we don't keep that calendar, we don't know what the next thing we're supposed to do is. 
And so that's where that's so valuable, to have that schedule you can look at and say, okay, I have it right here on this piece of paper. This is my schedule. Whatever is on my schedule is traction. Whatever is not on my schedule is distraction. Hmm. Nice. With the, that calendar that you said uh, 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 that we need to sort of have this plan of what we're doing, how do you sort of factor in things for a bit of flexibility or a bit of uh, serendipity uh, as opposed to having every minute-by-minute minute scheduled? Yeah, so the nice thing is that you can plan for spontaneity. Yeah. Right? Plan spontaneity. It sounds like an oxymoron, but you can plan for anything. So if you want time to just mingle, that's okay. If you want time in your day to walk around the office and chit chat with your colleagues, put it in your calendar. If that's according to your values, if that's something that helps you uh, live out your values of being a good team player, that's great. Put it in your calendar. I think that's terrific. You should put that in your calendar. The problem is, that much more often people say they want time to be spontaneous, but they also want to do great things, start a great business, or you know, write a novel, or you know, be tops at their at their place of work. But the fact is, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you know, if if you if you don't plan your time, you plan to fail. Somebody's going to plan that time for you, and they're going to pull you from one thing to the next. You don't want to decide in the moment what you're supposed to be doing with your time. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Because in the moment, we're very weak, right? We have very little willpower in the moment to, to, to be persuaded from one thing to the other. What we want to do is to plan ahead. And by planning ahead, we offload that willpower. We don't need that willpower because it's very clear. What I need to do is right here. And so I encourage you, plan the time to let your brain wander, plan the time to meditate, to take a walk, whatever's consistent with your values, make time for it, but do it on your schedule so that you make sure you actually get it done as opposed to just, you know, letting it happen whenever it comes because you know it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's, you're not going to get it done. Yeah. Another one of the a method we've come across, I'd like to hear your thoughts about is the, you know, the digital detox method where you plan a specific yeah. period of days to take away from your devices and the idea being, after that, you know, 30 days, then you're completely free of the addiction, so then you don't have to go back to it. So what are your thoughts on this whole philosophy, and um, is this the right approach to use it to be effective? Yeah, so I'm not the biggest fan, and I'm not the biggest fan for a few reasons. Number one, uh, it's very impractical for most people to just swear off their technology, even for 30 days. Uh, we need these tools for our livelihood, so it's it's very easy for you know, someone who doesn't have a social media account to tell other people not to have social media accounts. Uh, but that's not so, <laughs> we can't do that for most people, right? Like, I need social media. My livelihood depends on it. And and why would I want to stop using it? You know how many people I would not be in contact with was were not for this miraculous invention of social media? I love it. So we need it for our livelihoods. I think it's a little pretentious to just tell people stop using it, even if it is for, for 30 days, because that's doesn't that's not practical for, for many people. You know, it's, it's just blanket advice as opposed to consistency considering people's individual circumstances. But more importantly, the reason I don't think it works is for the same reason that uh, I had such a tough time losing weight. So I used to be clinically obese. If you're listening to this as opposed to watching us now, I, I'm no longer clinically obese. You're looking, uh, you're looking about, extremely fit. 
thank you. you thank you. Uh, by the way, I didn't used to be. I, 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 you know, the reason I wrote this book, people think, oh, you wrote this book because you have, you, you have good self-control. No, no, no. I wrote this book because I don't have good self-control and I wanted to find out how to get good self-control because it's such a, such a factor in terms of increasing one's happiness and life satisfaction. So, so yeah, this is, I am patient zero here. I wrote this book for me before anyone else. And that's why it took me five years because I experimented with all these techniques, including the digital detox and digital minimalism. And the same thing that happened, and I did this, by the way, I got rid of my uh, my iPhone. I got myself one of those old flip phones. Yeah. Uh, cost me twelve dollars, and I started using it. I got myself a uh, a word processor uh, from from eBay. Ah. I got this thing off of eBay <laughs> that uh, is from the nineteen nineties that uh, doesn't have any internet connection. And I thought, ah, okay, I got rid of my my internet. That's what these books tell you to do, right? That's what they say. This digital <laughs> detox. That's it. And guess what? It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work for me because I'd sit down and say, okay, I got my word processor, no internet connection. I'm going to start typing away on it. And then I'd say to myself, oh, you know what? There's that book I've been meaning to read. <laughs> or my desk is messy. My desk is messy. I should probably clean it up. Or my trash. My tr I should probably take out my trash. And I kept getting distracted because I hadn't dealt with the real source of distraction. So digital detoxes, of, uh, unfortunately, in these 30-day plans, they still make the tech the problem instead of focusing on what's going on within. And so this is exactly what used to happen when I dieted. So when I used to be clinically obese, I would go on these 30-day plans, right? No junk food for 30 days. Hmm. Guess what happened on day 31? Macca's. <laughs> everything. I made up for lost time because I hadn't dealt with why I was overeating. I wasn't overeating because I was hungry. I was eating my feelings. I was eating because I was bored, stressed, lonely. That's why I ate. And if I didn't deal with what was going on in my life, then I wasn't solving the problem. And so that's the same thing we have to do with distraction. Yeah, I think whenever you hear someone do any kind of 30-day challenge or an F45 six-week challenge, <laughs> and whenever it's got a time limit, you, you just know straight away it's, it's doomed for failure. Like the only way to success in any of that is to have the long-term lifestyle habits that you know you're going to have for the rest of your life and that should be the goal from the very start yeah i, I couldn't agree more i mean the, the whole idea of a temporary diet whether it's a digital detox or digital what you know minimalism or whatever it is if it's temporary it ain't gonna work <laughs> because you know what do you do after the 30 days and so the idea here from indistractable is that you don't have to get rid of these tools I love these tools so there I, I, there's no reason to get rid of them what we want to do is to use them differently is to use them appropriately so that we can get the best out of them without letting the, them get the best of us I think you're um is your next door neighbor about to get put in put in jail by the police in the back yeah, <laughs> sorry so this, I have this I have this nice little office that's, that's relatively soundproof. You know, I live in New York City and this is this is the sounds of New York City unfortunately. You can't you can't completely escape it. I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. I love it. We were, uh, as a I guess there's a bit of a Aussie sense of humor. We had uh, um, we had uh, Cal Newport on about six months ago to talk about digital minimalism and a 30 day detox so it's always uh, good not not to stoke uh, stoke the stoke a flame or anything but we like to you know you know get a bit of a taste of two different ideas because there are two very different ways of yeah. doing it one is like the full shut off from everything and see how you go and one is a more gradual change and it's always interesting to see what works for different people for sure yeah yeah and, and look i have a lot of respect for cal he's a friend he was kind enough to blurb my book he gave a very nice endorsement of the book uh i i, I think we agree on many many things i i don't agree on on you know, on his particular way of, of doing it. But, you know, if it works for people, great, do it. I'm not going to say not to do it. I, I just would say it didn't 
that technique didn't work for me. And so that's why I wanted to write this book. I was looking for a method uh, that not only uh, is backed by research. So everything in my book, you know, there's no, there's no personal anecdotes of, I, you know, take a cold shower every morning. Well, where, where's the research? Everything is, is backed by peer reviewed studies. And I have tested them on myself and my clients over the years. That's why the book took me so long. It took me five years to write it because I tested a lot of techniques uh, that were either not backed by good research or just weren't really effective. And so everything in the book it, it meets that requirement of those two things. Yeah, I also probably like the the research element as opposed to the uh, either personal anecdotes or the story from Susie who works at the cafe or Jonathan from the desk across from yeah. me. That's, that's yeah. so common in a, in a lot of books, I think. You know, yeah. so that it was refreshing from that point of view. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's why there's you know there's that big thick bibliography in the back full of full of studies. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, that's been a, a phenomenal overview of the of the brand new book. Uh, and some you know, nice little taste of how that sort of applies to the real world as well. We'd love to uh, now talk about some of uh, You've got a very impressive bookshelf behind you there. A lot of uh, spines I recognize and perhaps a, a few to add to the list as well. What are some of your uh, favorite books or, or books that you would recommend the most? Sure. So let me give you um, – I'll give you three recommendations. Uh, one of them I mentioned already, this uh, self-determination. It's not, a, it's not a book. It's a, it's a, it's a body of research. Uh, but if you, if you really want to understand the nature of human motivation, you really want to look into self-determination theory. Uh, there was a book that popularized the ideas of, of Desi and Ryan, their research called Drive by Daniel Pink. Um, it's good. He changes some of the language, but it essentially gives you the same idea. It's a, it's a really good book. Um, another book – uh, it's called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. If you really want to understand what addiction is about, uh, that's a terrific book. And then I'll give you a, 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 a book of fiction, Moby Dick. Uh, if you want to see how uh, compulsion and addiction is nothing new and how many times it has nothing to do with a substance, how many times it has to do about escaping your demons, Moby Dick is a, is a piece of fiction that I think really encapsulates that, that message. Oh, I love it. I'm going to get on it. And if uh, people want to find out more and uh, search for you and your book and your, you got an awesome indestructible T-shirt that I want to get as well. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do you yeah. get that on, on your? Do you have a website or anything like that for people to go to? No, it's actually not for sale. If if you really want the T-shirt, uh, you know, reach out to me and I'll see if I can get you one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't I don't sell them. I I use it. You know, so there's a tactic in the book that's called making identity pact. We we know that when you call yourself something, you're more likely to abide by the tenets of that identity. So, you know, there's an old joke. How do you know someone's a vegetarian? Don't worry, you. they'll tell you. <laughs> right? And, and not to pick on vegetarians. Like, you can substitute, you know, keto or CrossFit or yeah. surfer or marine, you know, anything, <laughs> any identity. But this is actually a very useful moniker. So that's why I wear this because this is who I am. And, and that's why I call the book Indistractable because when you call yourself Indistractable and you say, I'm the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do, it helps you stay on track. It helps you live out that identity. Uh, but if you really want the shirt, uh, get in touch. I'll find a way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so if you want more information about the book, uh, my website is near and far. Uh, near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So that's N-I-R-A-N-F-A-R.com. And if you want specific information about the book, including a, we have a complimentary 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the into the final edition because it's 80 pages and the book was already 250 pages and nobody's going to read a 320-page book on distraction. So we decided to pull it out, but I can get that to you uh, for free. There's also a uh, an online video course that's also free if you get the book, and all that can be found at indistractable.com. It's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. 
Fantastic. Nia, thank you so much. It's been great to chat today and uh, all the best with the new book. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Appreciate it.